you have your Bibles, you can turn to the New Testament, and we're spending time the past few months in this letter called James. The New Testament book of James, continuing on now in chapter 4. We're looking at this morning our text, James 4, 11 through 17 is our text today. You have it also written there in your bulletin insert uh, as well. If you'd like to follow along and listen as I read God's Word. And brothers, do not slander one another, for anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. But there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this truth that we have just read, your very word, that though two millennium ago was written down, today we have your word that gives us as much clarity and understanding of how we may know you and how we may relate to you as our Heavenly Father, not just as our Creator, but as one who has given us a full relationship with Himself because of being the one who has given us that access through your Son, the Lord Jesus. May His Word this very hour bring us not just understanding for our minds, and for our hearts, but also for our hands and feet, that we may apply these very truths to our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All that glitters is not gold. You can't tell a book by its what? Cover. These are familiar sayings and probably many more proverbial sayings are just like them. They have this in common, that at first glance, initially upon seeing something or being exposed to something, you might have a first impression. You may actually have a first conclusion. But after looking at it a little more closely, we find maybe we weren't as accurate as we thought. You know, in our Western culture, too, it places so much emphasis on the external that sometimes first impressions actually go much longer than just first impressions. They become lasting impressions. And one of the dangers of living in a world and in a time of our day and in a culture where the external has so much emphasis placed upon it, one of the dangers is that we might be tempted to presume something that actually is not the case. In fact, 
oftentimes we find ourselves, at least if you're like me, presuming something to be true, either about someone or some situation or some, something I might see, whether or hear on the news, the radio, or read, or just in relationships in my world. And after a while, I find that maybe my presumption wasn't true. Back when I was involved in uh, team sports at Middle Tennessee State and, and uh, was involved in that uh, football team, there was um, a time in the season, or rather in the off-season, where we would do extensive weight training. And everyone, no matter what position you played on, even the kickers had to go and train with weights as vigorously as you possibly could do so in the off-season. Well, what was interesting was if you lined every player up shoulder to shoulder in a room and you were to walk along and you were to ask the question, out of all these football players, as you just look at them, which one would you think would be the strongest in the weight room? I'm sure if you were like me, you would have probably picked the 350-pound linemen, which we had, more than one of them, who were very massive and huge and strong. But the answer to the question on that, at that year would have not have been <clears throat> one of our offensive or defensive linemen that were that big, had necks the size of 19 inches around, but it would have been a 180-pound running tailback on our team, was a phenomenal athlete, and he could squat over 600 pounds on his shoulders and could deadlift almost the same amount. He, he could lift more weight than any of the linemen that were twice, almost twice his weight. Impressions can fool you. <clears throat> we may presume things that actually aren't there. Today, James is challenging us in these few verses in regards to, I believe, two areas. First, in the area of possibly our presumption or what we may be thinking is true, and then concluding and judging others around us. But then secondly, also, presuming upon what I would call God's providence, upon God's own providence that He knows and is overseeing in our own lives. So let's first look at what James addresses, what I would call the presumption of others. <clears throat> Verses 11 and 12, he says, Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. For there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? He asked the question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? First, he starts out by saying, brothers, he's speaking very intimately and closely to Christians, brothers, those in the church at that time, those who were part of that community of faith. He's not just speaking to anyone in the world. He is especially wanting to address, as he so often has in this letter we've seen, those who are part of the church there in early, in Jerusalem, in the early church, those who were claiming and following the Lord Jesus Christ. James specifically addresses them <clears throat> because, as we can see, they were actively slandering. There were some, those in the body of Christ. There was a problem that he was addressing specifically of some in the church that were speaking and slandering even publicly to those around them against their own family spiritually, brothers or sisters in the Lord. And by doing so, were, 
I'm sure, inflicting great harm and pain upon those who were receiving such slander. So he's addressing the issue of what's going on in their community, but he goes on and he says, if anyone does this, they're speaking against their brother and judging him. And when they do so, they're actually speaking, he says, against the law, and they judge it. Now, when you slander someone, if you have ever done so, or speaking, spoken ill of someone, someone's reputation, or giving some indication of, of that regarding someone you're having a struggle with, what does it mean that you sit and judge of that person? What is James really saying when he's saying anyone who does so speaks against the law and judges it? Well, see, when you do actually slander someone, in some sense, you are setting aside the law of God. How are you doing so? Well, as James says, you're setting aside the law of God, which is, of course, love your neighbor as yourself, the law that Christ gave us to fulfill the great law that he's given us. When we set aside that law to love our neighbor as ourself, then we will slander someone. We will speak against them possibly at times. And when you set, assault, set aside that law of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself, then you're putting yourself actually as judge above the law. When you have the power and the authority in your own mind to set aside that law, then in a sense, you've placed yourself above it. You are the one that can use or set aside the law of Christ in your own estimation and how you decide to do so. So in that way, we are speaking against the law when we set it aside and we become really above it in our own understanding. But how does slandering someone put them in a position of judgment? When you slander someone or someone slanders you, how does that place you in a position of being judged by them? One of the uh, well-known commentators on the New Testament, Simon Kiestemacher, on the book of James, says this, in a court, a judge must be impartial in evaluating the evidence and be just in applying the law and passing sentence. The slanderer, though, by contrast, generally neglects to learn the facts, avoids speaking in the presence of the accused, and sets aside the law of love, and as a self-appointed judge, hands down the verdict. That's how someone is judged. And if you're slandered against or spoken against wrongly, inappropriately, that's how you are judged because someone does these things against you. In other words, when we do slander or we receive such slander, we presume to know better than God's truth what another person truly is about or even what they deserve or don't deserve, and we take the place of being judge. And God called us to be careful not to do so. This past week, there was, um, uh, I think a Memorial Day weekend, there was a special on the History Channel. Sometimes there's some good things on the History Channel, but it was more of a docudrama. I'm not sure how accurate it was, but it was on the Hatfields and McCoys, that historical feud that you've heard about, of course. And um, it was kind of interesting watching this particular docudrama, uh, as I did. And it, of course, highlighted the two families, 
the Hatfields and the McCoys, one uh, divided by the river in Kentucky and in West Virginia. And as these two historical families who uh, still, of course, have living relatives today, and it spoke about, it showed kind of how maybe the feud got started and what happened there. William Hatfield, the patriarch of the family, his brother was unfortunately stabbed and shot by three of the McCoy's sons in a social gathering, um, which was after, of course, some ill will between them because of the McCoy's being accused of, um, or rather the Hatfields being accused of stealing one of the other family's pigs, and that being a big dispute. So there's a lot of ill will. And after they unfortunately did shoot this uh, relative of the McCoys, Randall McCoy, the sheriff captured the three boys. And in the scene uh, that they showed, the sheriff wanted them to go to trial. He said, no, they shall be tried and justice shall have its day in order to do this. But of course, he's doing this on horseback in front of I don't know how many of the Hatfield family. And they said, no, uh, we'll handle the justice. And so they then, by, by force, removed these three boys from the sheriff's custody and took them home to then basically imprison them, waiting to see what would happen with the oldest uncle, the brother that was shot. Well, Randall McCoy, he came to that home by himself without anything armed, and he pleaded that Mr. Hatfield would let his three boys go because he just said, please let them at least go and go before the court and to have justice. I promise they will do that. And he, <clears throat> he responded, Hatfield did, by saying, if my brother dies, they will receive justice. And sure enough, that's what happened two days later. His brother did die. And they took the three boys out, and they had their own type of justice. You know, I thought about that whole storyline and what happened. And in one sense, they took justice in their own hands. They didn't allow for the court system and the, and the way that it was set up to happen occur. Instead, they said, no, we'll act as judge. We'll be the ones to make the final decision on what's right and wrong in this situation, obviously because it was personal. How often might we do the same thing? Maybe not, of course, to that degree, but in a very similar way, we take matters into our own hands. When it comes to maybe something that we really believe needs to happen in our life with the Lord, and instead of <clears throat> submitting and letting God be the final judge and the final decision maker, which ultimately he, he is regardless, we seek to take things in our own hands, and to try to act according to how we see things need to happen, just like the Hatfields did in a very different way. <clears throat> so we have to be careful that we don't do so, just as they did uh, so many years ago. In verse 12, <clears throat> James continues on and says, who are you? He asked the question to judge your neighbor, to presume certain things about your neighbor, and then to go ahead and judge them is James saying that then by asking this question, whenever a brother or sister in the Lord that we have a relationship with, we know whenever someone who we have a relationship in Christ <clears throat> is struggling and it becomes apparent in their life that as we know them, that they are struggling and they have a situation in their life that needs addressing spiritually and they need 
some exhortation, some encouragement, possibly some accountability that everyone who sees and knows that should just turn our head and not make any conclusion about their known situation that is very clear and obvious? I don't think that's what James is saying at all. In fact, when there's a situation that God clearly puts in your life that you might go in relationship to someone and be that sound reasoning voice, be the one that stands alongside of them, speaks the truth to them from the Word of God in love, we certainly should follow that call. In fact, James in chapter 5, which we'll come to in just a few weeks, himself says how important it is to help those who do at times, like all of us, go astray. James 5 verse 20 says, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So James obviously isn't saying something against his own words just a few a chap, one chapter later. Again, the Apostle Paul in chapter 6 of Galatians says this to us, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Clearly, as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we are called to lovingly, to graciously hold each other accountable, to love each other, to help each other as we all will stumble, we will all struggle in our journey of grace, and we all need one another to willingly stand alongside each other and to speak the truth of God's grace to each other. But you know, the only way we can even accomplish this in any shape or form, to rightly speak truth to each other, is only to do so in the power of God's grace, what the gospel tells us we should be about. See, God is the only one who sits both as judge and justifier. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel. God is not just our judge, and he's the only one ultimately that sits, sits as the judge, but he is our justifier. He's the one that justifies ourselves before him. Jesus himself had to even place himself under the Father's judgment. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, And when they hurled their insults at him, that is Christ, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The gospel clearly there tells us that we're already condemned. We're already condemned and judged because of our own sinfulness. All of us, the gospel tells us, and we've been found, all of us, completely guilty of spiritual treason. We all deserve, in a sense, the firing squad, spiritually. All of us do. There is not one exception. But by faith, the gift that God gives us, he secures for us in his son, is what Jesus has done. He has gone before and he has become the one sacrifice to give himself to the one true judge. 
and has received in his own person the very death sentence, the very judgment that you and I should receive ourselves. That's the gospel, that Jesus has received that guilty verdict. He has received that condemnation, and he has received the due penalty for that guilt. On our behalf, as our substitute for what we deserve. And instead, we receive all of his righteousness, all of his love and his grace instead. And so in that, we're humbly able to share that same gift with others. You know, James warns us not only about presuming upon others, but also our presumption at times upon God's own providence in our life. Verses 13 to 17, James goes on and says, Now listen carefully. You who say today or tomorrow we'll go do this or that in the city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist, appears for a little while and then vanishes. In verse 13, he, he says the description in a way that makes, I believe, the specific context probably he's addressing, James is, those who are particularly in the marketplace. As he says, those who say, I'll go to this city or that, I'll spend a year, I'll carry on my business, and I'll make money here, make money there, this way or that. Addressing those in the marketplace who are seeking to care about their business, he specifically is challenging them, addressing them, and his premise is very true, not just for them who are in the marketplace saying, I'll go about my business this way or that. I'll plan my market, marketplace endeavors in such a way. But it's also applicable to anyone of us who may not be in the market, uh, so to speak, who may not be in the business world in the same specific way. We can still take this truth that James is saying and apply it. Verse 14, it says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You're a mist that appears and then vanishes. You know, James reminding us that everything in this life is what? Fragile and temporary. Is it not? Everything in this world is fragile and it is temporary in this life. But as we have been given an eternal perspective and life eternally with our Father and the Lord Jesus, we have a different perspective even though James reminds us that we cannot put too much of ourselves into this world, for it is fragile, and it will break with one simple, in one simple moment. It is so temporary. Everything can change in a minute, and everything is always under God's sight and His providence. This past weekend, uh, our family had a chance to host um, Aronsa, who's only going to be with us for about another week or so. Aronsa, as you know, is a guest, been with our church family and also with the Andersons for the past few months. Uh, she's part of one of the families in the church that we support in Guad Guadalajara with our missionaries, the Robertsons. And so before she left, we wanted to have a chance to take her and experience something maybe she hadn't before, and actually my daughter's never had. We went on a rafting trip on the Okoe River this weekend the Okoe River, and it was an experience like they've never had before. And it's amazing when you're on this river going down in the raft, you know, and you're watching people ahead of you <laughs> and what's going on around you. You can anticipate, but 
in one second, you're in this water that's just only a couple feet deep, and it's so calm. You see a few ripples here and there and rocks, and it just seems like, what a lovely afternoon to enjoy a beautiful river, and then the next moment, it just drops, and you're almost turned upside down. The boat is completely filled with water, and all it just changes in a second, and you don't realize it. That's how often life is. Things can change in just a second. You might be going along, and it may have happened to you even this very week. Going along, and it just seems like a pleasant ride of life. And then something happens. And all of a sudden, you're turned upside down. Your boat is filled with water. You're just looking anywhere and everywhere on what you can do to try to rescue yourself and make things different than the way that they are in the situation you're in. Very similarly, we experience these things regularly. It's not a matter of if your boat's going to tip or if you're going to get some water in it in your journey of life. It's just how much and how often. Those are the real questions. And we don't really know the answer to those questions, do we? None of us know how much and how often. We just know it will happen. It's already happened and it will happen again as long as we're on this side of heaven. And so we have to constantly then think, well, how are we to deal with those situations? One of the best of course, weapons against and how to handle those providence of God is to understand what God's providence really is. And what does that mean for your life? You may hear someone say, well, you need to trust in God's providence. And that sounds very, oh, uh, high and mighty. It may sound almost somewhat like you really, you really just can't even connect with that kind of a thought, trusting in God's providence. Sounds nice, but what does it really mean to really trust in the providence of God? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? And I love the answer that the Catechism brings us. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. That last statement, without His will, nothing can be moved in any way. That means... That anything that happens in your life, anything and everything, will not happen outside of the love of God for you and outside of his knowledge and his awareness and his ability to care for you and to keep you in his care during that entire time. No matter how long it may go, or how short it may be. No matter what it is, God's providence means that God himself is there for you. Not his doctrine, himself. His very presence will be with you. 
Romans 8, 28 tells us, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Believing in the providence of God is absolutely foundational to rightly understanding even the nature of God himself, who God really is. His very nature communicates to us that he is providential. He is sovereign, and he watches over all. Nothing about God is random. Nothing. Nothing about God is unpurposeful. Everything about him is purposeful. Everything about our Heavenly Father has meaning and has a purpose for our life. Every single thing. And that's hard to accept for some of us in light of what we maybe either have experienced in our past that we still haven't been able to resolve with God's goodness and His providence or maybe what we're currently in the middle of right now, even as you're sitting here hearing God's truth. You know, often we might tell someone when we're seeing them off somewhere or we're, we're in passing, we might say, hey, good luck with that. You know, you might say, hey, good luck with that. hope, hope you have good luck with that. Now, I'm not going to say, you should never say that in the sense of, you know, I've been chastised, chastised by I don't know how many people if I've ever let those words come out of my mouth. And they have, and they probably might again sometime, I don't know. The, the real understanding when we say something like that is what do you really understand about God's providence? What do you understand about even that whole concept of luck? Of course, we don't believe that anything would happen outside of God's providence. We do believe that everything is within His care. And as believers, nothing happens in our life by chance. And so we can't presume upon God's providence, but we can trust in it. You see? It is good to trust in God's providence, but what James is challenging us is to not presume upon God's providence, not to presume that God will do what we want or desire for him to do. You know, instead, God weaves every little circumstance in our life together to form, in a sense, that tapestry of his providential purposes. And he weaves circumstances and things that are happening in our life all together for us in one overarching purpose for our life. He continues to do so daily. Verse 15, James says, Instead, what should you do? You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So what does James mean when he says this? Does this mean that if I ever forget to say, when I'm about ready to say, well, I'm going tomorrow, or next Tuesday I'm going, or on July 15th when we go on vacation, we're going to go to... Does that mean anytime you state something about the future, whether distant future or near future, unless you state, if it is the Lord's will, well then, you're, you're wrong. You need to always say it like that. No, I don't think that's what you need to do. And if you start doing that, I'll tell you to stop. <laughs> because that's not what James is saying. In fact, how would I know that's probably not what James is telling us? 
is because the very next verse. Look at verse 16. As it is, he says, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. What is he saying? He's saying you should say, or at least you should have the mindset, I, I make plans, but they're all submitted to God's providence and his, his plan and purposes for my life. That's how I think about my future on earth, is in light of what God desires and whatever his will will be, I want to follow that and submit to that, regardless of what, how I might see it before I get to it. And having that understanding of my life, that is what God desires. But if I instead boast and brag about what I'm going to do and I constantly count, so to speak, my chickens before they hatch and I'm constantly going about and making plans on how I believe things need to go and they will go and they better go this way or else, that's the, different, that's the wrong kind of heart. That's not what God desires, our desires to be, our perspective to be. Those who have such a boastful perspective about their future is what James is trying to speak against. That's what James is addressing. It's more than our words. In other, in other words, it is more than mere words that James is trying to say. It is the attitude of our heart towards what our plans are and how God is seen in those plans in light of the future. That's what James is really challenging us on. You know, the question must be asked, well, when does God's providence really become valuable to you and me? When does his providence become most valuable? When does the stock price really go up in God's providence in your life and in my life? I'll tell you when it goes up. It goes way up when we experience loss, tragedy, difficult things that we don't expect to happen in our life. That's when God's providence and its value goes up, like it did in Job's life. You remember Job? He lost his wealth, his livelihood, his home, his family members. And then in Job 14, Job says these words, Man born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. Man's days are determined. You, speaking to God, have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. That's a perspective of a man who understood the value of God's providence in his own life, who had experienced extreme loss and had experienced things he never anticipated or planned for in his life. And he clearly understands the finiteness of his own person and of everyone and the infinite wisdom and providence of his Creator and of his Heavenly Father. James reminds us that every day and every moment is not in our control, but it's under God's loving providence. You may wonder why this front row is empty today. <laughs> it wasn't planned that way. In fact, 
Yesterday, we had a, a staff get together at our house, and about a half hour before everybody was going to come into our home and have lunch and a cookout and enjoy a couple hours of fellowship, my wife reaches for a sock of laundry and could not move. Her lower back just completely went out. It's not happened to this degree in her life, um, but it definitely is very significant, and so much so that she's horizontal right now, and the girls are at home caring for her. And so that's why they're not here this morning. And yet, what a perfect example just a few hours ago of something unexpected in her own life that she's dealing with right now. Our girls looking at their mother saying, you know, being concerned and very worried. They've never seen her in that kind of physical pain. Now, I've been with my wife going on now 25 years of marriage, and I don't think I've ever seen in this much pain before, and I've been with her when she gave birth before to Sophie. So I know what kind of pain she can endure. She has pretty good tolerance for pain, but this experience was unlike any other, and what an opportunity to have something unexpected come in and yet say, okay, what is God's purpose for this? There's lots of things happening today and this week in our family's life and in our daughter's lives, the things that are already have been planned for weeks, let me tell you. Things that have been planned for weeks, even months, that are happening today and tomorrow and the next, that you would look at and say, oh, their mother, have to, their mother has to be with that child for that and that and that situation, that more than likely are going to have to take place without mom being there, there, there. Well, that's a chance for even our own children to trust God in their own life, that God's providence is going to be there for them, that God will provide for them. Things happen in just a split second, and we don't expect them. What an opportunity to never presume, but to trust that God is good and that his providence will always provide.